Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We wanted to let you know that Olin's first book, What to Do with Worry, is now available on Audible. You can also purchase physical copies where Christian books are sold. Now, here's Olin. John chapter 17, and we're going to look at the idea of being in the world, not of the world. So this is a passage that we're probably all familiar with. Jesus' high priestly prayer right before he gets arrested. We're not going to read the whole thing. Skip down to verse 15. John 17, verse 15. I do not ask, speaking of the disciples, but really of all his followers, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So, in some sense, verse 20 shows Jesus is praying for us right there. Um, And this is where we get the idea, biblically, of we want to be in the world, not of the world. Right? Now... Flip over to 1 John chapter 2. Most of the time when the Bible, especially the New Testament, especially the Apostle John, uses the word world, he doesn't just mean planet Earth, but he means the sinful world culture. That's what he's talking about. That's what We're supposed to live in the middle of this sinful world culture, but we're not supposed to be of it. We're supposed to be distinct. We're supposed to be different. Look at 1 John chapter 2. Skip down to verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. Okay? So, ever since Adam and Eve chose to rebel, there has been a rebellious, sinful world culture. Now, almost instantly, God redeemed Adam and Eve and started a covenant community, even on planet Earth. And we're like this little embassy of the kingdom, even though we're surrounded by this sinful world culture. And even still today, think about in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul refers to Satan as the prince of the power of the air. In some sense, planet Earth is still occupied territory. Jesus started an invasion with his life, death, and resurrection, and now we're advancing the kingdom in every tongue, tribe, and nation. But it's hard to be in the world but not of the world. Is it not? I mean, there's the two extremes. We could just go be a monk or a nun, get away from, you know, cut the internet off, cut the TV off, don't ever talk to non-Christians, go live in a cave somewhere with some bread and some water and just read our Bible all day and maybe we'd be really holy. You wouldn't really be because you have enough sin living inside of yourself and that's not what Jesus wants you to do, so you're already in sin living in the cave by yourself. Or you can swing the pendulum all the way to the other side. Man, I'm going to be so much like the world that I don't look any different. Everybody likes me. Uh, I fit in really well, but nobody listens to me because I don't have anything to say. Anything different than what they're saying. How do we do this in the world, not of the world? It's hard for every Christian, but I think in some sense it's extra hard for campus outreach staff. Now, here's the reason why. Really what campus outreach staff are, biblically speaking, we're evangelists. Right? I mean, we, we, are, we do other things, but primarily what are we doing? We're going to the college campus. We're going after non-Christian students trying to lead them to Christ. We're young ourselves. We tend to be young in the faith, so I want to do a little experiment here. Okay, I want, if you have been a Christian 10 years or less, 
I want with your hands for you to hold up how many years you've been a Christian. So like if you've been four, just hold them up, keep them up so I can look. If you've been a Christian for less than 10 years, how many years you've been a Christian? Okay. All right. So we got some people. Okay, I think we got a four. Maybe that's the youngest. Okay, put them down. Maybe, I, yeah, a couple fours. Now here's the thing. To me, that's a wonderful thing. I was, I was teaching a staff training for another ministry, similar in many ways to Campus Outreach, different than others, a group about this size, maybe a little larger actually, and I asked, how many of you came to Christ in college? Only one of the people raised their hands. I think that's a problem for an evangelistic ministry. I think one of the greatest things about Campus Outreach is, let's do just this. If you came to Christ in college, raise your hand. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Keep them up. Everybody, everybody do it again. It, seriously, is it me and Enrique were the only two people in the room that didn't come to Christ in college? And Emmanuel. Guys, that's amazing. Do you realize how amazing that is? Do you realize how amazing that is? That, that's a gift. That's a blessing. And, and we need to be great, faithful stewards of this ministry. You also realize the danger that we've got people in this room, and I'm glad you are in this room. You've only been in Christ four years, and then it's like, hey, we're going to throw you right back into the deep end of the fiery furnace of this sinful culture. And listen, working with college ministry, we tend to work with some of the worst stuff out there in the sinful culture, and also some of the most alluring stuff, is it not? He told a dark story about a guy with FCA that just got out of jail. I could tell you stories about people that were on staff with Campus Outreach doing really, really well, and they left, and they, I think, really believers, but a couple of bad decisions, and God redeems, but really messed their life up. We're not above it, right? So I want us to try to think through how can we effectively be in the world, not of the world. So I want us to look at this short little passage in Titus, Titus chapter 2. You know, this is one of the pastoral epistles Paul's writing to this guy named Titus who's a pastor on the island of Crete. And right in about the middle of the letter, we get this. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, uprightly, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, God has always been gracious, right? That's always been part of his nature. He was gracious in the Old Testament. But his grace appeared in the most manifest and obvious way when the Lord Jesus Christ came to earth, lived, died, rose again. Now, when you think of grace, here's kind of my personal definition that I hope sticks with you of grace. It's God's smile and it's His strength. It's almost like think of Jesus looking at you, smiling at you, and flexing. It's like, I love you, I like you, I'm for you. And I'm going to use my power to help you, to save you, to bless you. That's grace. Okay? People say unmerited favor. That's wonderful. The problem is, though, that can sound too passive sometimes. Kind of guy's like, well, I'm favorable towards you. But it's an active favor. It's a moving favor. Now, God brought salvation, justification. It's a free gift. And we're going to talk about worldliness in the Christian's life, or at least the danger of worldliness. And I want us to think for a second, why is it that Christians tend to 
struggle at times so much with worldliness. And listen, worldliness, we'll say this later, but it's just, it's just another way to say sin. Just sinfulness, right? It's, it's being like the sinful world culture. So it's any kind of sin. It's just worldliness. There's at least two reasons, and then maybe a third, that I think we, and, I, and I'm thinking of all Christians, but I'm really thinking specifically of younger Christians, campus outreach Christians, evangelistically focused Christians. Like we hang out with lost people a lot. And let's be honest, and a lot of times we like the non-Christians we're hanging out with, right? I mean, that's, that's one of the glories of college ministry. It's like, I get to hang out with the people I used to be. So I still like a lot of the same stuff. Like, hopefully the innocent stuff, right? They like football, I like football, whatever. Okay, they like baking, I like baking. Whatever you like, all right? But here's the thing. Sometimes we can think, whether we say this out loud, or even think it in the front lobe of our mind, what we can feel is... Practical godliness doesn't really matter. Right? I mean, we, I bet, again, in Texas, in the Bible Belt, probably a lot like Alabama, there are some people that grew up as good Baptists and I grew up as a good Baptist, and they're like, hey, man, Jesus died on the cross for all my sins, past, present, and future, so I can party my brains out until I go to heaven because it's all been paid for. You know people that believe that? And we're like, well, you're not a Christian. Rightly so, if, they, if that's the way they're living their whole life. But the danger is, we still kind of get influenced by that a little bit, right? It's like, eh, if I kind of just party, not my brains out, I just party a little bit tonight, going off the story he told earlier, and I'll go out somewhere by myself where nobody knows me. It's already paid for, right? He already loved. We're tempted, at least, to believe godliness doesn't really matter that much. But guys, that would be a little bit like I date my wife, I pursue her, I win her over with gifts and love and all that, and we get married, and then I just totally ignore her. Like, I got you. I don't have to date you anymore. I don't have to be nice to you. I don't even talk to you. I'm just glad you're here. That would be evil. And we don't want to treat Christ that way. Justification is just the beginning of the journey, guys. It's not the end of the journey. What happens in justification, initial salvation, is we are set free instantly from the cosmic penalty of sin. But then you enter into this lifelong process of sanctification, which is slow but sure, progressive freedom from the power and the persuasion of sin. And the two are linked together. You can't separate them. Okay? Saving grace is also sanctifying grace. They always go together. Now the second reason I think sometimes that Christians... Evangelist, campus outreach staff can struggle with worldliness is we don't want to be a legalist. Right? We know legalism is bad. Like, Olin, you read that long, complicated Jonathan Edwards quote, you know, just right before lunch. Jonathan Edwards is against legalism. So am I. So I'm, maybe I'm going to go drink a couple extra beers so nobody thinks I'm a legalist. Right? We, we are all the way against legalism. But we have to remember, guys, there's a ditch on both sides of the road. If there's a ditch of legalism over here, there's a ditch of license over here. And sometimes in the name of not being a legalist, we can swing the pendulum too far and end up in the other ditch. You ever known people like that? It's like the drunk driver. I don't want to hit this mailbox, so I swerve over the other way. You hit the mailbox on the other side of the road. Don't hit either one of the mailboxes is the goal. Now, let me just say a word about legalism as we go into uh, this worldliness talk. But this is important. 
we need to be serious about obeying the Bible. And part of, and we're going to get into this, part of what it means to obey the Bible is I have to think about personal applications of the principles of Scripture. Does that make sense? That's a good thing to do. And I'm going to give you examples as we move forward. But what you can't do, here's one way to be a legalist, and it's very dangerous when you're in college ministry, evangelistic ministry, and you're leading these people to Christ out of the lost world, and you can try to give them your applications sometimes, which can be good as an example, as a suggestion, as a model. But when you turn your personal application into the 11th commandment, that's another way to be a pharisaical legalist. Is that, you understand what I mean by that? And, and guys, I bet we all know someone like this, right? I bet a lot of us maybe have an uncle or something, and he was an alcoholic. And his sin was all wrapped up in alcohol. And so when he got saved, and it was a glorious, miraculous conversion, part of his thing was, I'll never touch alcohol again. And for him, that makes a lot of sense, right? Because he literally is like chemically dependent on alcohol. But then, don't you know people like this? They're like, if you really love Jesus, you'll never touch alcohol again. It's like, well, that's not in the Bible. And they're like, yeah, but that's in my experience. So, And they act like they're Moses writing a new commandment. Don't be that way. Don't be that way. Okay. Now, um, and listen, where you do have a good personal, maybe you're like, dude, I used to be, you know, drink like a fish every day. God set me free. I don't touch alcohol anymore. Great. That's, that, can be, that, that might be the application God wants for you. But don't start judging other people by your personal application. Evaluate other people based on the Bible, not based on your personal application. Does that make sense? Okay, so grace. We get grace. Grace is supposed to lead to godliness. So look at verse 12. Notice, it's, it's still the For the grace of God has appeared. That's the first thing it does. It brings salvation for all kinds of people. Rich, poor, white, black, you know, man, women, everybody. But keep going, same sentence. It's training us. You ever thought, grace trains us. And that word for train, it can mean like teach, instruct. It can also mean like correct, discipline, chastise. It can even go as far as like punish, whip, scourge. So really, really the idea probably here is, is like grace coaches you. And grace is not afraid to give you a spanking if it needs to give you a spanking to motivate you. It's teaching you, it's correcting you, it's training you, it's disciplining you. You could even say it's discipling you. It's what grace is doing in our life. Okay, so grace trains us to what to do what? To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. To renounce means to deny. Right? To just, John MacArthur said it this way, it's a conscious, purposeful action of the will. I'm going to intentionally say no to sinful things. Now, ungodliness, worldly desires. Why, why say it that way? Because in some sense, Paul knows that some of these sinful practices that we're tempted with, they look totally normal to the world, right? The world's saying, everybody's doing it. And still to us, it's like, it feels pretty normal. It feels normal. But it's worldly. It's sinful. And we've got to say no to it. Guys, the Christian life is like a house renovation process. Any of y'all ever had, you know, work done on your house that ends up going like way too long? And it's like you're living in the house for three years with only one functioning bathroom and the plumbing's messed up and, you know, there's wires coming out of the wall. And, well, that's just your life if you're a Christian. That's my life. 
until I see Jesus face to face. It's a renovation process that I'm living in. Some parts are really getting better. And it's like, I love the new den and living room over here. Look at that brick around the fireplace. It's beautiful. It's like, don't look at the bathroom. It's a freaking disaster. That's like our lives. But listen, this is important. This is so important, guys. Because sometimes when Christians hear teaching like this and you read stuff like this in the Bible, we can think that the Christian life is a stalemate between Jesus and Satan in the Christian's life. It's like, well, it's just it's a fight, but it's two steps forward, two steps back. I don't know if I'm making any progress. I'll just have to wait to heaven. No, no, no. It is a fight. And yet it's two steps forward, one step back. But in the slow grind, the war is being won. We should be getting progressively more holy, more conformed to the image of Christ, even though it's painfully slow, right? Okay. We did the thing with our kids. I'm sure some of y'all are doing this with your kids, maybe, maybe not, where on their birthday you come downstairs and you stand in the door frame of the pantry and we mark you know, over your head and you see how tall you are, right? Have you ever, ever seen that or in a movie or maybe your parents did it with you? My daughter, when she was really little, the day after her birthday, she'd run back downstairs really excited and say, Daddy, she called it inch me. She's like, inch me, inch me, Daddy. See how many? And I was like, baby, I'm just going to be putting a line on the exact same line we did last time. You're not going to see any progress. So I'm not growing? Yes, you're growing. But you just have to wait. It's the same thing in the Christian life. So don't, don't be a hyper-introspective navel gazer. Why wasn't my quiet time today better than the but probably maybe once a year, look back, and you'll be encouraged. You'll see progress. You're supposed to be growing. Now, look at, again, self-controlled, or you could say sensibly. Righteously, or upright. And then godly. And, and maybe there's a sense of, it's the way you lead yourself, personally. It's the way you interact with others, and it's the way you interact with God. Now, Heath asked me to speak on this. Heath didn't say anything like, hey, we got staff struggling with these three things. He just said, I know this is a temptation. Will you speak on this? That's why I'm speaking on it. But as I was doing this, I said, because I, a lot of what I do in my job now is I travel around to different regions and do staff trainings, coachings, assessments. And then I, you know, I, have, I live with myself. <laughs> so I tried to think, what are, the, what are the worldly sins that I think young people, evangelists, and campus outreach staff are the most prone to be tempted to the most often. And I came up with 13. This is bad stuff, so I thought I should come up with a bad number. All right? Um, now, my guess is none of you are going to struggle with all 13 of these. If you do, you should probably talk to Heath about a different job. Okay? Um, but I, I do, I, I want us just to listen and take notes and, and prayerfully say, Holy Spirit, where, where am I struggling? Where am I tempted? And may, maybe not. And again, I just, I literally, I just started writing down the ones that came to mind. So the first would be sexual sin. And that's all the way from the small, just lustful thoughts, lustful looks and glances to pornography, to hooking up with a girlfriend or a random person, what you watch on TV, everything in between. Drunkenness. Probably not sloppy, blackout drunk, blackout drunk like Heath was telling the story earlier, but... Maybe just one or two or three, too many beers, glasses of wine, whatever it is. Gluttony, just eating like a horse, overindulging. Listen, this is a very domesticated sin, right? You got to struggle with one. It's like struggle with this one because you can get away with this one in public. <laughs> Nobody's going to say anything to you because they're doing it too. Greed slash worrying about money. 
You say, well, what exactly do you mean there? Do you tithe? Do you tithe on the gross of everything you make, even though you're the poorest person at your church? Do you steward the rest of your money well with savings and 401k and insurance and whatever? The fifth one. Here's the best way I knew how to say this one. I'm going to give you an example. Public political posting. Now let me give you an example of what I mean. We had a guy on our staff team years ago who remained nameless to protect the not-so-innocent. And uh, President Trump at that point had said something stupid. Surprise, surprise. He said a lot of stupid stuff, right? And one of our staff people posts like, how dare President Trump say this, and I don't understand how any Christian could vote for this. And so I, I, I spend virtually no time on social media. I don't think I was on any social media at this point. So one of my air directors who's over this guy came and said, hey, one of our staff you know, did this. You know, here's the screenshot. What do I do? I said, well, number one, tell him to take it down. And we were in a leadership team meeting. Somebody was like, well, if it was President Hillary and I, would you say take it down? I was like, yeah, I would. I said, tell him to take it down, and then ask him why he put it up there. And uh, so he did. He told him to take it down, took it down. He said, no, why'd you put it up there? He said, because I really want to know. I really want to answer my question. How could any Christian vote for President Trump? And I said, okay. You know, air director said, what do I say to that? I said, you say, this guy lives in a small town in Georgia. I guarantee you he's got some friends that voted for President Trump. He didn't have to post on Facebook for 2,000 of his friends. He could just go to somebody at church and say, can I buy you a cup of coffee and ask you why you voted for President Trump? And that's a mature way to handle that. Right? So, so, so that kind of stuff is bad. Listen, we are evangelists for Jesus and the gospel. Not for the Republicans, not for the Democrats, not for the Green Party, not for the Libertarians, not for you know the Republic of Texas or whatever. Everybody remembers Michael Jordan, right? And when he was selling Jordans back then, and I don't even remember what the controversial issues were back then, but he did have some people say, why don't you speak out on some of these controversial issues? And he said, anybody remember what he said? And I'm not even a basketball fan, but I just I, I do like Michael Jordan, and I watch some of the documentaries. He said, Republicans buy sneakers too. That's why I ain't saying nothing. Now, we can, we can judge Mike for that if we want to or not. But, he, but basically what he was saying is, selling tennis shoes and money is more important to me than political causes. Now, you may say, that's terrible, that's greed. Here's what I'm saying. The gospel is more important than whatever your political cause is. I'm not saying it's not important. But that's our greater good that we are going out there to proclaim. Does that make sense? I'm not, listen, I'm not saying there's not a time to confront people. I'm not saying not to be passionate about a cause. I'm not saying there's not a time to disagree, have controversy. I'm just saying about 99.9% of the time, the way to do it is not on social media. It's, it's not what, I mean... Whether it was designed for that or not, it's not a good medium to have debates about that kind of stuff, right? Okay. The sixth one. Almost halfway done with this list, all right? It's getting good. It's getting good. Laziness. Mm. Oversleeping. Not responding to emails and texts from your boss. Mm. Right? Not being faithful with the small things, like turning in your reports or your expense reimbursement or whatever. 
right. Yeah. Number seven, coarse language. Here's what I mean here. I don't think it's sinful to say the word darn. I mean, literally, one time I think I was teaching a Sunday school class at Broadwood, and I said darn it. And later somebody came up and said, I don't think you should say darn it from the pulpit. And I was like, I'm pretty sure I heard you know, Frank Barker say darn it from the pulpit one time who founded this old church. So I'm going to stick with darn it. All right? I, I'm not saying you have to be a prude and never say anything that your grandmother wouldn't approve of. But, but there are, we do need to be careful about our language. Coarse joking, and I'm getting more specific here. This is eight, okay? But really, a lot of sexual joking, which our culture loves, right? It's like half the comedy industry is based on this. And please, listen, I'm not saying it's always wrong to make a joke about sex. C.S. Lewis has this famous place in The Four Loves where he basically says, if you can't laugh about your sex life, okay, you're probably taking it too serious. And if you've been married very long, you just realize at some point, the best thing you can do is laugh. If you don't laugh, you'll cry. So, I'm not saying you you can't ever make a joke. I just made a joke right here publicly about it, okay? But but here's here's the point. There there is a wholesome way to make jokes, to laugh about all of life, but y'all know what I mean, right? All right. Nine. Okay, here's the ninth one, okay? These may seem similar, but joking, mocking others. Listen. Just because you have thick skin and can take a joke doesn't mean everybody else can. Just because, in your opinion, everybody should have thick skin, and I would tend to agree with you, doesn't mean they do and doesn't mean you should treat them like they ought to. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, and, and, and a lot of times, this is a total side note, but maybe an important one. What I've noticed is some of the people that can dish it out the most, they really can't take it. And that's the worst kind. But even if you're like, no, no, I can take it. Bring it on. Fine, good for you. We'll get you a medal, right? Be sensitive, be loving to other people. All right, number 10, quarreling. Quarreling, arguing, right? And this is what some of the public posting comes from, but let me kind of give two varieties of quarreling what I mean. The first one is about stupid things that don't matter. Whether that's your favorite pizza, what vitamins you should take, or your favorite NFL quarterback. Now listen, are you, am I saying you can never have a disagreement about that? No. But like when you're getting like passionate and mad and yelling, real Tom Brady. Like, man, lighten up, dude. Or arguing about things that do matter, but way too passionately. Like baptism, right? I grew up Baptist. I'm Presbyterian now. Sometimes people are like, I really want to have a conversation with you about this whole baptizing babies. And I'm like, seriously? I'm like, I will. I'm, I'm happy to have that conversation. But is that, of all the things we can talk about, that's what you want to talk about? Because I'm not even that interested, to be honest. Okay. Eleven. Modesty. Clothing. I'm out of my depth there. I won't say any more. So, just there you go. <laughs> Twelve. Okay? The victim mentality. Right? The woe is me. I've been hurt. Somebody sins against me. So now for you have to listen to everything I say. Nobody can ever correct me. Nobody can ever rebuke me because I got hurt one time. Are some people in life really villains? I mean, yes. 
Are some people in life really victims? Yes. In some sense, we're all victims. We've all been singing. Have some people really experienced tragedy, trauma? Absolutely. And we need to be hyper, gentle, understanding, patient, kind, sensitive. But the worst suffering in the world is never like an ace of spades that you can play all the time to say whatever you want and get out anything you want. And that's the way our culture treats it. And Christians get sucked into it. All right. The 13th. The music we listen to. Right? Uh, Listen, oftentimes it's very focused on worldliness, greediness, very sexually suggested. Listen, I'm not a big music guy. All right? I'm not a big music guy, okay? I don't know what Emmanuel's saying, okay? Um, But I... I'm not a big music guy, but you know, sometimes you get in the car, you're tired, you just turn the radio. I mean, I don't, I'm still, I still turn on the radio. I don't know if anybody does that, right? Because you just have your playlist. Just turn on the radio, and there's some new song I've ever heard, and it's like a cool beat, you know, so you just listen to it. And then, you know, it's like you start paying attention to the words, you are like, I think they're talking about a strip club, you know? Mm. They're in the strip club, this, they're making it sound really interesting. Mm. That's probably not helpful. Mm. So I'm not saying you've got to listen to worship music all the time. Mm. I'm just saying, be careful. Now, um... William Hendrickson, no one sleeps his way into heaven. You may say, that sounds like legalism. Promise he's not a legalist. But what he's saying is, it's the fight of faith, right? And the sign that you're a real Christian is you're in the fight. That's the proof you really have been saved by grace, is that you are being sanctified by grace. You are persevering. Dallas Willard Grace is against earning. It's not against effort. Okay? God's kindness, God's favor, it teaches us. It doesn't just smile, but it changes us. It's strength plus the smile. So, God's grace makes us godly. And why? For glory. Look at verse 14 again. Who gave himself for us. Excuse me. Verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God. And then verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Listen, he's trying to buy us out of not just the penalty of our lawlessness, but the practice of our lawlessness. And to purify for himself a people for his own possessions who are zealous for good works. Eager for good works. Is that you? You're like, man, I love doing good works. Are you like, that sounds like legalism. (laughs) There ought to be, no, no, no. I love Jesus. I like doing good works for him. So, we're going to have a little personal time here, but let me, I want to give some, again, suggested applications. Maybe not for everyone, but for most of the ones, just the list I just went through. Okay, think about sexual sin. Uh, I'll just tell you some of the things I do personally in my own life, just to avoid temptation, because it feels like it's everywhere now. Can't even watch normal TV. So, I. I've gotten to a place just recently. This is just this year. I don't watch TV by myself, period, anymore. If somebody else is not watching TV with me, I just don't turn it on. And listen, I like watching TV, right? It's easy for somebody like, I never watch TV. No, no, I, that's one of my, like, hobbies. But I've just found it's just, it's just too dangerous, it's too tempting. So unless I'm watching it with somebody else, I just don't turn it on. You know? I don't get tempted when somebody's sitting beside me to watch anything I shouldn't watch. My iPhone, you know, some of y'all probably heard me, I always tell people, this is the biggest waste of an iPhone ever. Because I have only a very small handful of apps. 
I don't have the app store on there. It's locked down. If I want to get a new app, I have to go to my wife and say, will you please punch in the passcode so I can get a new app, right? Reporting software on that, reporting software on my laptop. Again, why? I'm a 46-year-old grown man. I don't trust myself. I know my history. Just better. Don't deal with it. Drunkenness, okay? I, I Almost, I would say most of the Christians that I know that do drink, they have some kind of standard. Whether it's I only have two drinks or I only drink with Christians or I only drink at home or I only drink. I don't, again, these are, but if, if you have a relationship with alcohol and it's like, I like alcohol, you probably need to have some kind of standard just to protect yourself. Gluttony, right? I mean, there's plenty of diet plans out there. It, this is more about holiness than your weight. It's about self-control. The greed, the worry about money. I just say one of the best things you do is budget by percentages. If you're like, yes, I'm tithing. Okay, well, maybe give 11% next year. And just make, just live in a budget. And have a realistic budget. And then at the end of the month, you're like, I've been in my budget and I got an extra $150. Great. Go blow it. Go out to a nice meal or go buy your 80th pair of shoes. But plan a good budget at the beginning and then stick to it, okay? The public political posting. If you feel like, no, that this, this is so important, I've got to post something, get somebody to read over it before you send it out. And not your hothead friend that's always ranting, but somebody that's level-headed and godly. And here you go. Maybe they even slightly disagree with you on the issue. But they're a good enough friend, they could read it and they say, yeah, okay, I don't agree with what you're saying, but you're saying it in a kind, respectful way, go for it. Right? Laziness. Just like you budget your money, you need to budget your time. Plan your sleep, plan your rest, right? I'm big, big on having days off and rest and all that, but work hard as unto the Lord. The coarse language. Listen, there ought to be words you're like, I just don't say those words. And, and, and from my study, I'll just I'll, I'll do a double click on this one with you. From my study, words that seem like they're taking something about God and taking it lightly, like damn or hell, if you're, if you're using it in kind of a trite way, I don't think you should use words like that. They ought to be used in a serious way. And the same thing with sex. Words that take sexual things and make them kind of light or coarse, I don't think you should use words like that. No. That's, that's where I've landed from my study. Coarse joking, okay? Again, there is an appropriate time and way to make a joke about sex. I didn't plan to do it. I think I accidentally did it in, in this sermon. But I think it's acceptable. And, uh, you know, if in doubt, just do it with your spouse or your closest friends of the same sex. This is an important one, okay? Joking and mocking others. If, in college, like when I was campus outreach student leader, and stuff, even probably my first year on staff, I was a ruthless prankster. I mean, now when I look back on the guys I discipled, like when I was still like a student leader, I'm like, it's shocking those guys still like me. I mean, we, we, did, it, we were just brutal to each other and just, right, just could mock, just rip each other to shreds verbally. And sometimes people will hear those horror stories like, dude, you know, I never, I almost never make jokes on people anymore. And here's the reason why. Because you just, you just never know. So, my wife. My wife is very godly. She's very mature. She has very thick skin. And, but even, so with her, we joke on each other a lot. And we can handle it. But everyone, even, even just the other day, I was kind of making some jokes about something. She tends to be a little forgetful. And I made a joke about, you know, hey, you know, Jackson, mom's coming in town. She's going to bring this, but she'll probably forget. And, 
you know, and then I just kind of looked at her and I just kind of saw something on the face, right? I mean, 20 plus years in, I said, hey, have I been making too many jokes about that yet? She's like, ah, you're getting close. So just, right? So I mean, even with my best friend that I know well, and she knows that I love her, she, right? You just have to be careful. So if I got to be that careful with her, with most other people, it's like, just don't do it. It's just not worth it. Be careful. Okay? The quarreling. Just is it necessary? Is it helpful? Okay? Or is it fun for everybody? Because I've been in rooms sometimes where like five people are like joking about something. And you see one person sitting in the corner like this. Like, be aware, be loving, be sensitive. Modesty, ask a friend. Okay? Don't ask me. Ask a friend. Okay? Either that you're married to or is that of the same sex. Okay? The victim mentality. This is where you should go. Jesus and Jocko. You understand what I mean there? Extreme ownership. Okay? I mean, listen, mainly Jesus. Okay? But with just a little bit of Jocko, it makes sense. It's like, don't blame people. Don't, don't be out there. Look, this goes all the way back to the garden, guys. It's not my fault, God. It's her fault. And you gave her to me. It's really your fault. It's not my fault. The devil made me do it. Go against that one. And then the music we listen to, you know, don't download that song. I mean, that's, that's one thing. Is just download all the songs that are good and trustworthy and even the rock and roll songs that are clean or rap or whatever you want, and then just listen to stuff on your phone all the time, and that takes away the danger. So anyway, those are some suggested applications. Now, in conclusion, really the best way to do this, guys, it's not categorically, I don't want to be a legalist. I don't want to be in license. I want to be holy. That's not a bad way, but here's, here's the better way, to think about it relationally. Because really at the foundation of this sin, I think for most of us, it is foundationally a relational sin because I think... If you said, okay, here's of those 13, here's the one I struggle with the most. Why? I bet for most of us it's because the people I'm around are doing it and I want to fit in. I want to be approved. I want to be accepted. I already feel a little bit like a weirdo because I'm a Christian and I work for a full-time ministry. I'm trying to be the least weird I can be. (laughs) And there's relational influences pushing you into this worldliness. But if you stop and think about it for a minute, there's a greater relational influence that ought to be pulling you out of this worldliness. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Spiritually, He's our bridegroom. He's the husband. We're the fiancé. And there ought to be a sense of, I have been engaged to the lover of my soul and I don't want to do anything to soil my appearance for Him. Because I have to, because he might divorce me or unbetroth me. If I, no. Just because he has loved me so much. He's given up heaven for me. I can give up these little pet sins for him. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, think about that. Think of the lover of your soul. I need to be serious about holiness, not like a mercenary. Right, you know, a mercenary, there's somebody that fights, but they're fighting why? Just because I'm getting paid. We shouldn't say, I'm going to fight for holiness because I'll get paid. That should not be our main motivation. The motivation ought to be, I'm fighting for holiness because He has loved me so great with His life, death, and resurrection. I want to love Him back. I'm waiting for the appearing. I'm getting to see my Savior face to face. Hallelujah, what a Savior. What a friend. What a fiance. Let me pray.
Lord Jesus, I pray for these next few minutes together, you would come near and you really would convict us in your gentle way. Would you speak to each one of us about maybe where we are in sin and where we need to repent and where we need to have some better convictions and some better applications? Well, we don't want to be legalists, but we don't want to be people who live by license either. Please make us holy because we love you so much, because you first loved us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.